0: Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Andy Church. Andy had a two-decade career in finance and business before finding his call to ministry and is currently working on integrating the two. He serves as the Minister of Operations and his faculty for the Chaplicy Institute, a.k.a. Chai, and he's a writer, backpacker, husband, and father of three. He currently lives in Tucson, Arizona, where he's done podcasts about everyday spirituality and dying well. And Andy has a Master of Divinity degree from Star King's School for Ministry and is an ordained interfaith minister. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Andrew, hey, I'm so happy to be here with you today.
1: As am I, excited to uh, get on open div and to, uh, to get to chat a little.
0: Yeah. Um, so I originally reached out. You teach this really interesting course at the Chaplains Institute called the Business of Ministry. And maybe before we get into that course and some of the specifics around it, could you just talk a little bit more about your background, how you came to creating this course, and
1: why did you feel like it was an important need to fill? Sure. I have a career, 25-ish year career in business, mostly in and around money, people's money, right? I had banking, I was a CFO, stockbroker, so I worked with people's investments, and I've always had this knowing that money is an important driver in people's lives, and yet they have these troubled relationships with it. So throughout my career, I really felt this sense of disconnection between my work just you know, kind of inside the machine, right? In the belly of the beast, just showing up at work every day, right. 70, 80, 90 hour work weeks, making lots of money and yet very little joy in my existence. And so I would focus on moments of joy in the workplace and encouraging my co-workers and the folks that work for me to share those moments of joy of their own. And I, I usually get in trouble for this all the time, right? Say, Andy, are you building some kind of fiefdom? What is this? you know? And I would say, right. no, I just want to, invite people to share to bring their full selves to the workplace. That never really worked out for me very well. So eventually I moved on and left the corporate world and ended up in divinity school and seminary in Berkeley to uh, do some soul searching of my own. So it was really through that spiritual work that I discovered what's important to me in this life and the kind of mark that I want to leave on the world and has led me to the Chaplaincy Institute where I teach. The business of ministry. So to ministers, to creative types, entrepreneurs who are spiritual but not religious, who are oftentimes carrying a great deal of baggage around money. You know, money is, a, is an obstacle oftentimes, or people think of it as something that gets in the way of them trying to be able to do their ministry to carry out their business, their world life-changing business. So I try to help them recast that or examine that assumption that it's an obstacle. And explore the possibility that it might be an essential part of their ministry.
0: Mm, Very cool. Yeah, I think I personally have noticed in my own life kind of this pendulum swinging back and forth between you know, periods where I will work primarily in tech and make money and the periods where I'll get burnt out on that. And, you know, I will feel like a great loathing toward the system. And then I will pendulum back towards like, you know, just doing work of the heart, right. And work that. And the thing that's interesting to me is in those phases, if it even smells like it might make money, I kind of have this almost recoil against Mm. it. And after going through, you know, a number of these phases in my kind of early work life, and even, you know, it's still definitely a dynamic life. There's really been this question of like how to integrate the two, because going back and forth is, for me at least, has felt really less sustainable long-term. And there's a sense of wanting to not have to choose one way or the other. But I'm curious, maybe in the course, Nick, you talk more about how do you work with folks around their relationship with money? Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe some additional context, like are the folks typically in organizations like they're in a church or a temple or a community and, and their relationship with money is coming out in their congregation? Or is it more folks who are exploring chaplaincy or spiritual direction or other kind of ways to make the spiritual vocation financially viable?
1: I would say very few of our students come through in that the business of ministry who are in a traditional mainline religious organization of some sort. There are some who are looking to do more entrepreneurial work. The vast majority are small business owners, like people looking to hang out a shingle as a wedding officiant, right? Or to do green burials or memorial services. Or probably a third of our folks are what I loosely call stealth chaplains who really don't have any association with a religious tradition or even a, a practice building a business as a minister. These are just folks that want to come and explore spirituality become more conversant with kind of the human nature, the human spirit, the essence of who we are as beings and then take that knowing back into the workplace to do their work. So you know vastly it's people who are searching people who come with way more questions than answers and I don't provide answers in this course either, right This is just a place where we make it safe to unpack those questions and to really pull out those things that you really haven't been felt safe talking about in any other course, or even with your family or friends. I mean, money is a loaded subject. And we, that's why we start there. We start with the student's personal relationship with money. Where we start with an exercise called their money autobiography, where they're asked to sit down and well, they do some exercises first and pre-work to kind of get things flowing. But then they're asked to sit down and tell the story of like, how did you first come into contact with money? What was your earliest memory of money as a child, and then on through the ways that it has influenced you through your life. So there's this really undercurrent of personal kind of soul spiritual work around our relationship with money, which of course feeds any business that we want to create or grow or nourish. So we give them some hands-on practical skills because people often come thinking, oh, I need to know how to do a business plan. I need to know how to do marketing or put up a website. So we do provide resources for those. But really, I think the secret sauce is unpacking our relationships to money so that we can boil down to its most pure essence. Whatever your business, whatever your ministry on this earth really is, whatever your cause is, it helps folks get really, really clear about what success looks like. What if I fail? What then? So we do some iterating around Okay, let's expect we might fail. What will happen then? What does that mean? Does that mean that my idea is not worthy? So therefore, I'm not worthy. I mean, all these hard questions kind of get answered in in through a four week workshop. Right, right.
0: It's interesting because I know well we were talking just in the pre interview a little bit about this idea that everything is sacred and you know it's all kind of ministry. Can you talk a little bit maybe about that? I think it's easy to fall into this like dichotomous thinking of Anything that is about money or touches money or is driven very much by money feels very much the profane right? and, and Marshall's is, yeah. is that economy. Yeah. So how does that come alive for you in your work and how do you try and communicate that to folks?
1: For me, the power of story is where it's at. So speaking to your point about how money is dirty, right? It's stained, it's it's an unfortunate kind of consequence or side effect that it gets used for great evil, all of those things are true. And all of those things are true about everything in life. You can do anything to a bad end. You can harm somebody in all kinds of ways, including with money. What I think it's important to remember is that there is also joy and there's also love that is encapsulated in money. Money to me is a totem. It is a symbol for a unit of, to me, human love, human endeavor. So that dollar bill that is represented by a, you know, a one or a zero in my digital bank account, at one time... That $10 bill was in paper form in the wallet in the purse of the Mexican grandmother who has spent 30 years running a bodega so that her kids can work there and they can all go to school to get an education, right? So she was sweeping the floors and doing the dishes. Somebody paid her that money. And I think that her intent has imbued that dollar, that unit of human endeavor, with love and with her spirit. And so I think it's a matter for me of listing up the other side of the coin. We often look at the shadow side of money, and it's very much a real thing. And there is another side to it, and that is one of great opportunity and the hope and everything that an eager business owner or an entrepreneur looking to change the world can and should take advantage of and just embrace rather than avoid.
0: Mm, right, right. It's interesting. I think the metaphor I've often heard for this that I really love is, or maybe it's a slightly different kind of connotation, but is the idea of like money as gasoline or as fuel. I mean, I think usually the metaphor is used to say, like, you know, you shouldn't just chase money, right? It's this idea that, you know, you need fuel to get around, but life is more than a tour of different gas stations, right? This is the kind of pithy quote. But at the same time, you do need gas. You need fuel to go wherever you're going. And like, if we are trying to go someplace big and really make a big impact on society, whether it's business or start a new congregation or, or equity work, people need to be, find fuel to sustain their lives and to be financially viable, right? And I think the dynamic I've known in myself, I've seen in myself, is this sense of it's easy to even if work is primarily kind of coming from this place of mission or heart so around questions of money to like really fall into this sense of I've seen for myself I was like grasping wanting more and maybe overly focusing on money perhaps because of my own conditioning but I'm curious and it almost seems like there's a practice almost like meditation of coming back to the breath of coming back to what really matters and not getting kind of caught up in the emotional
1: entanglement around money. Does that resonate? Is that kind of stuff you guys totally, cover in time? Totally. Yeah. So one of the other things that we teach in that course or that we, we practice in that course is reading your business documents as sacred text. More so writing those documents as sacred text. If you think about writing your business plan, your vision, your mission, your values, if you think of that, if you practice that as a spiritual exercise and really embrace everything that that process has to offer. You will find oftentimes I've found that you're going to end up with a vision statement that resonates with you like no other you have ever written because it's not just about the money or scaling or, you know, being able to sell it, you know, private equity or, or, or whatever. It's about the cause. So yeah, it's absolutely about spiritual practices. If you write those documents, not as if they are sacred, but knowing that they are sacred. You start the whole process, you start this whole cycle in a virtuous way, and then you build practices, very much like you would have a spiritual meditation practice for you go on a retreat, or you're going to pray seven times a day, whatever it is. Handling your business in that way, I think there are some beautiful cross-pollination tips. I mean, humans have been doing religion for thousands of years. I think there are amazing tools and lessons in those texts. I'm not suggesting we throw out religion and, and cherry pick only the parts we like, because it is important to have discipline and a practice. But I think it offers us a framework that we're silly to not use and, and learn from.
0: Right, right, right. I mean, it almost seems like sanctifying the act of this, right, bringing intentional meaning to something which we may not if we're just going about our day-to-day assigned meaning to, it may seem more like a, a test that needs to get done or something that is more right. well-affected the world, but how do we connect that to our values or our deepest sense of, of calling in the world?
1: That's the um, human condition, right? It's remembering why I'm yeah. doing this and what really matters and keeping well, ourselves awake. Yeah, and I mean, it's also interesting because I think there's always, I mean, I've seen this for
0: myself and with other creatives or other folks, there's this conversation that happens, right, between the calling and the marketplace. Like I think... Uh, David White, the Pope calls it the courageous conversation. And I'm curious, you know, how do you guys work with that? In the class, if someone wants to become a wedding officiant or green bears or, or kind of has this call to do something more, maybe more hard hardcore to move in a new direction in their career, how do you work with folks to kind of have that conversation with the market and figure out what is viable without over-optimizing for that and losing a sense of what actually drew them in the first place?
1: One of the teachers and elders that I, I like and follow is Bill Plotkin. And in his work... He talks about stages of, of human development. And he's actually quoting someone else. And I think it is a Native American source. I'd have to go back and check that. But what he talks about is there are two dances that we each do in this life. One is kind of our soul dance or our sacred dance, right? The whole reason we're here, you know, I'm here to be an artist, or I'm here to love people, or I'm here to whatever it is, change the world. And then there's our survival dance, right? And that's the thing that we do to subsidize the other thing, right? So those two dances actually kind of dance with themselves. And it's often a tension between them. Sometimes they're very much polar opposites or, or kind of ends of a pendulum swing, like you mentioned earlier. Sometimes they kind of start to come into alignment and swirl around each other. And when that happens, it's most often, in my experience, because a person has gotten rid of the dross, right? They've, they've let go of everything that doesn't serve them and that's not authentically them. And the kind of work we do in this course is designed to do that, that cleaning, that clearing out, that smudging, if you will, to distill your, your ministry, your calling, your business idea, to distill that down to its most pure essence and to find why are you even trying to do this thing? Is it just to make money or is there a thread connecting you to something more meaningful? And if so, let's explore that thread. So we do talk about the tension between the marketplace, what the market wants, and what you want to offer the market. And it's really a question of exploration. Again, religion has been handling big questions for a long time. So I choose to embrace that and give people the tools they need to answer their own questions because I can't answer questions for them.
0: Well, and it's interesting, you know, I think one of the things that this kind of whole discussion raises for me and, and is, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on is, you know, I've been experimenting with kind of communities and, you know, organizations kind of or experimentations around containers and meaning for a number of years now. And I see a lot of other people in the community space or other people who want to create meaningful gatherings for people or create, you know, I mean, meditation programs or things like this kind of struggling with the questions of business model, right? Do we give it away for free and have people donate? Do we have a suggested donation? Do we charge a certain amount for it? How much do we charge? How do we have, how does price engage with questions of equity and accessibility? And I see a lot of people really struggling with it. And in my personal experience, projects that I've worked on that didn't become financially viable all shut down when I no longer had the energy and motivation to work on them. And like the few projects that I got to financial viability had enough kind of infrastructure to continue even after I I was ready to pass on the torch to Mm -hmm. to another crew. And and there's definitely other ways to kind of create long-term viability, right? You can kind of, I think, create, you know, buying an interest in folks who just want to also put their time and energy and love into a project to keep it going. But I think there is something that allows more energy and resources for a project that can compensate people a fair living wage to work on it. So I'm curious, you know, have you seen any interesting models or how do you work with folks in the program to, who are thinking about how do I actually price things? Where do we monetize, right?
1: Yeah, we see all kinds of different creative models and approaches, everything from variable pricing. So I know one wedding officiant who charges top dollar, You know, tens of thousands of dollars to do what she does because she's approaching an audience that has access to those kinds of resources. And they have an expectation, frankly, of paying a certain amount. And if she's found that if she doesn't set her price accordingly, she'll just be dismissed out of hand. So to be even credible, she has to come with that kind of pricing. And then she uses that to essentially subsidize her work with other, you know, people from marginalized communities who don't have access to those resources. And she'll do your, your wedding or your memorial for free or you know, for some sort of barter or you know, sort of sliding scale. So that's a common approach. There are people that start nonprofits, right? What's so interesting about that is
0: that sounds like a wonderful model, right? If you can get the like the really high paying work. And I think what I see a lot in this space is folks who have access to people or in spaces and are used to giving away work for free. And there's this question of how do you transition into finding the communities or the, the areas where people are willing to pay you the, the amount of money you need to subsidize kind of the work that can't generate that income.
1: Absolutely. So back to my original founding principle of this course, which is getting clear about who you are as a person, getting clear about who I am as a spiritual being, what I'm here to do and what I'm not here to do. I think that's even more important, right? What I'm just not made for. The clearer I can get, you know, there's a saying in Buddhism that a life's work of sitting on a meditation cushion on on a Zen, you know, the little pillow and meditating for hours a day, every day for 20, 30 years, what you're doing essentially is just polishing this mirror of the self to get it more and more clear so that you can let go of all the illusions of life, stop kidding yourself into thinking that you're something that you're not, reaching ultimately enlightenment. So my point there is that you're never going to, or very seldom, it's really, really hard to show up to a high net worth audience inauthentically right? And with something to shill or to sell. The people I see that are really successful, like this wedding officiant, walk in there calm and relaxed and confident and serene. I mean, this woman has what I call a priestly presence. And she's not a priest. But she has that that kind of radiant bubble around her. And this calm knowing that, look, if you want her to do something that she's not comfortable doing, she's going to say, you know, I'm not your efficient. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. I wish you the best of luck and walk away from, you know, $20,000. So I think there's some confidence building and some soul level work that goes into showing up with that level of realness.
0: Right. Right. And it seems like also... You know, in some ways, it seems like you need to have the financial basis covered to be able to do that, right? Like if that 20K is going to go towards putting food on the table, it's a lot harder or impossible mm-hmm. to walk away from than if uh, yeah. you're in a place where you at least have the, the basis covered. And gone.
1: That's it is so important because one of the first obstacles, I keep saying this is the first thing and this is the first thing, but this is really the first thing, is kind of getting over myself, getting over the people can smell desperation a mile away, right? So, you know, first of all, getting clear about who I am and all that, but being worthy of earning money, right? Being worthy of handing a client an invoice for $15,000 when I would have felt funny about $1,500 of, you know, invoice, recognizing that this is a virtuous, can be a virtuous exchange of your services and your whole life's work, right? When you're approaching a client with whatever it is that you do, ideally, you're bringing them five years of experience, or 30 years of experience and every failure you've ever made, you're bringing that to them with everything that you have. In exchange for that, you have got to be, I have got to be ready, willing, and able to accept a commensurate exchange for that, or else it diminishes the value of whatever I'm giving. So you've got to get really clear on that, and you do that by practice, by trial and error. The woman that charges You know, tens of thousands of dollars to marry people has been doing this for, I think, 17 years and used to charge, you know, $200 to marry people. And she married a lot of people and figured out that there are some people that are just not working with. So she made the mistakes and now she's bringing all that authentically to the table to people that can afford it.
0: It's so interesting. I mean, it just reminds me of just how kind of crazy pricing is just as a phenomenon right like you mentioned before like if she's not pricing high enough some people are just going to disregard her completely because price can signify value and i think what's really interesting is to really like i'm thinking of some of the times when i've put out numbers that are higher than i felt comfortable with and there's like a gut level like it could raise some anxiety and i think what's interesting too is Value is going to be different to different people, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, one person is willing to pay, you know, this much. One person is willing to pay significantly less. We're willing to pay, and I think it's easy if you're only talking to people who are gonna who are like two hundred dollars. That's pricey to really have self doubt when you then come across someone who can pay us a whole lot more and to feel a real block to charging more because there's this kind of environmental feedback that you're worth less than this amount. And really, the problem is. There's not that like match like price is a function of both the, the product and the, and the buyer.
1: Look, we live in a cycle. We live in a culture based around, I believe, scarcity. I believe capitalism is built on the notion of scarce resources. Right? I've got to work harder, faster, longer, smarter than the next person, or I'm gonna I'm gonna lose out. I'm not gonna get access to my share. I think the programming that goes along with that is really unfortunate because it kind of bakes in this narrative that we're not inherently worthy unless we work, right? We're only valuable in in as much as we can produce something. So that's the beauty again, to me, of taking a spiritual approach to business is recognizing our inherent worth, starting from a place of kind of wholeness and respect for whatever it is that you've been through in your entire life. Like all the mistakes, all the victories, everything you're bringing to this relationship. And you're feeling like, yeah, you are worthy to receive this money. If I'm trying to get married and the same thing holds true, and I'm just trying to scrimp by and gosh, you know, I really, 75 bucks is all I can afford for my wedding. You know, there are some questions of equity and access to resources here, right? And not everybody has access to the same resources. I think there's still an interesting question there. And to say like, well, what are you worth? What are you willing to invest in your own wedding? What is important to you? Are you important to you? Enough to spend, you know, this amount of money that signals something else. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of psychology, kind of spiritual psychology kind of baked into all these equations.
0: Yeah. And I think it's so interesting too, because there's this idea in the religious world of bivocationality, right? You know pastors or our folks who work a job in the corporate world or or what have you just work on an explicitly secular job even if the lines between the secular and sacred we take to be blurred to be able to fund ministry. And I think, you know what's interesting, that's typically been the path I've pursued. And often it's because it's just so much easier to justify a price in the business world where you're like, you know, we're gonna save you this much money, we're gonna make you this much money, we're charging you less. You know, it's clear, right? As opposed to something around here it's on this where it's like how do you really almost like anchor and how do people value something that is in some ways priceless right how do you how do you value personal growth or spiritual growth even like divinity yeah. school you know how to how to how the price tags of like you know of hds or union or chi or any of these organizations right it's like how does one think about you know that
1: relationship as well right so right if i spend sixty thousand or eighty thousand dollars at harvard am I going to be that much more spiritual when I'm done than I, like, if yeah. I spent 20 or $30,000, like how does that, how does that work out? You know, really interesting. Yeah. Well,
0: and in addition to this course, you're also the the minister of operations at Chi the Chaplain Institute. And I'm curious as a more mature organization kind of in this space, how are you guys thinking about some of these questions now as well, in terms of, you know, what's important operationally? And how are you thinking about, I guess, you know, growing as an org and, I imagine you're primarily funded through courses and education and maybe in addition mm-hmm. to, to grants.
1: We are. That's a perceptive question and one that's very much alive for us right now. I think before we came on, I mentioned that Chaplaincy Institute just turned 20 years old. My personal ministry is to organizations, right? It's a spiritual care for organizations themselves and, and kind of nurturing those. So when I started working at Xi, I really took a look at the resources, the staff, the structures that were in place and did an assessment of, is this sustainable? You know, we talk and we teach our chaplain students and our spiritual direction students, we preach and preach to them about sustainability, self-care, healthy boundaries, right? Not pretending that you can fix something for someone else that you can't fix. But what I noticed was for all of this emphasis on self-care for our students, It was a case of the old saying, like, the cobbler's children have have no shoes, right? We weren't practicing that ourselves, so we were burning out staff because it was such a great cause. It is such a great cause. I mean, we train interfaith caregivers to go out into the world and take care of people, right? What better thing to be doing at a time like this? And so it's easy to get excited about that. And at the same time, asking people to work on subpar wages and Working way too many hours and you know trying to just fix everything, we would just burn people out. And so our mission now, kind of our calling, is to embrace those practices ourselves internally, right? And so I'm I'm close to implementing a mandatory nap for everyone. I haven't done it yet, <laughs> but I am I'm very serious about that. I, I follow the work of Trisha Hersey. I don't know if you're familiar with Trisha. So she's the Nap Bishop. You can find her on social media. I think it's the Nap Bishop or the Nap Ministry. And she is very adamant about that whole notion of inherent worth, right? Starting from there and, and nurturing ourselves as beings. If we come together in a place like the Chaplaincy Institute as whole and nourished and respected beings and cared for beings, the end result is going to be just immeasurably improved. So that's kind of where we are right now, is figuring out how do we go from just scraping together what we can from kind of a scarcity mindset into You know, more of an abundant thinking or what what could be possible if money were no issue? Let's play that game a little bit and then come back and say, okay, well, that sounds pretty great. I bet we could get some funders excited about doing, you know, anti-racism work inside this kind of milieu of pastoral care or spiritual direction, for instance. So interesting.
0: And that sounds like a really meaningful kind of shift to be able to shepherd an organization. I know so many people who are doing kind of work of the heart who burn out, right? And myself included, I've gone through several phases. So yeah, such an important kind of endeavor to be moving towards.
1: Yeah, there is never enough time. There will never be enough time to do everything that needs to be done. And still, we are here. We are called to do something. So what is that? And how can we sustain that over a career? How can we do that? Right,
0: right. Well, Andrew, I think we're right about at time. But before we jump off, if folks want to find out more about you and your work or the Chaplaincy Institute, where should they
1: uh, look? You can find us at chaplaincyinstitute.org and all the social channels. I'm also on social media at prolificate and all the places as well. Yeah, I love to talk about this kind of stuff. And really, I'm, I'm very much, I'm as much a student as anything else, right? One of the things that excites me about this whole journey is that I get to learn every day. I get to show up and facilitate a workshop where the students bring the teachings, the students bring the lessons. It's almost like they just needed permission to unpack those and to work with them. So yes, I'm very much alive with this work and would invite anybody, whether religion is your thing or not, to consider, are there some lessons here that would be useful for you?
0: Cool. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time and looking forward to perhaps
1: continuing the conversation sometime down the road. You are welcome and I am happy to connect anytime.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation from the Open Div Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.